So I want to talk to you today about parables. Um, we're kind of in between series. Uh, the next series that we start on will be the prayers of Paul. It'll be called Pray Without Ceasing. And the, uh, uh, but in between, I'm, I'm trying to put that together. I'm, I'm trying to be prepared for that. I, I want the succession to be for the last two years that we would start with Jonah and the idea of the angry prophet, the guy that wasn't happy with anything, go to Paul, who's content with everything, uh, and from that go into guard the gospel, the situation that Timothy was in in his environment and how uh, that culture was hostile to the truth of God, hostile to the gospel, and uh, Paul uh, charges Timothy with guarding the truth and going forward and kind of gives him some guidelines on how to do that. Well, the next obvious step is to pray. Uh, so we're going to do a series on the prayers of Paul. Uh, we'll take a look at, they are incredible. We'll take a look at why Paul prayed, who he prayed for, how he prayed, and how his prayers can be personal and at the same time uh, reach out to the church and to the lost. Uh, so while I'm getting ready for that, uh, we're going to drop into a mini-series, uh, something that we'll use as we go forward to fill up uh, break weeks that we take and that sort of thing, and it'll be based on the parables. Uh, I'm calling the series Stories That Change the World, and what I want to do is, and what, what I hope to do with this series is show you uh, that the parables are fantastic stories. We're familiar with most of the parables. They're something that we've all heard before. Um, but if you take a look at the parable in context, now when I talk about in context, I'm talking about what has happened prior to the, the, the parable. Anytime we talk about a passage in context, we want to see how that passage fits into the paragraph it's in, how the paragraph fits in the chapter, how the chapter fits in the book, and, and how the book fits in the overall story of the Bible. So that's context. I'm here to tell you today, and I hope to be able to show you that when you see the context on a parable, it just causes it to open up and blossom. Uh, the, these are not just quaint stories with moral lessons in it uh, and maybe a little bit of spirituality. Uh, they are examples of profound truths. And so we're going to explore the context on the Good Samaritan today and show you how Jesus very methodically goes through his teaching before he gets to this lesson and how the lesson is just filled with profound truth. Uh, so we're going to take a look at the Good Samaritan today. Uh, this will be part one. We'll just, we'll look at parables every now and then when we take a break from our regular series. We'll probably look at another one next week. If you have a favorite one, come and tell me afterwards, and then uh, we'll see how that goes, all right? Uh, we're in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. If you turn in your Bibles there, Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set them on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. About 10 days ago, Rodolfo Rodriguez was visiting his family in South L.A. Uh, he would come up from Mexico two or three times a year, uh, spend some time with his family, have dinner with them, and after dinner every day, he would walk the neighborhood. It was good for his digestion. He's 91 years old. He's got some energy. So he was walking the neighborhood, and he passed by a woman uh, who had her daughter with him, and as he passed by, the woman started hollering at him, go back to your own country. Go back where you belong. And the more the woman hollered, the more she got upset. She picked up a brick and started beating Mr. Rodriguez about the head and the face with the brick. And as she was doing this, she called out to some men who were standing by, and they came over and began beating him as well. Well, there was a passerby who stopped and began filming them and called 911, and the police came out and made some arrests, and uh, they took Mr. Rodriguez to, to get care. Um, he suffered a broken jaw, two broken cheekbones, uh, a, two broken ribs, and his head and face and his chest and shoulders were all covered with, with cuts and, and contusions, and, and he's still recuperating, and he's fortunate that he didn't die. Have, have you, when's the last time you picked up a brick? They're pretty heavy. Can you imagine beating somebody with a brick, much less a 91-year-old man? I don't think he's fortunate he didn't die. I think, I think God preserved him. And I'll tell you why before we leave today. We should be out of here by two. <laughs> Meanwhile, I, just, just walk with me for a few minutes. We're, we're going to go to South L.A. And uh, this neighborhood that Rodriguez went, went was in is adjacent to Compton. How many of you know about Compton? It, it, it's just not the most comfortable place to be. Uh, the, the neighborhood's not bad, but it's the kind of place where you don't want to be out too much after dark. There are gangs in the streets. They're hanging out on the, on the, the corners and so on and so forth. So walk with me. It, it's near the end of the day. There, there are people standing around that, that we don't know. That they, they look a little suspicious. That maybe they're looking at us like we're looking a little suspicious, and we're probably uncomfortable. And as we move into the next block, Mr. Rodriguez is lying there in the gutter. And we, we don't know what happened, 
All we know is he looks like he's in bad shape. Now, what do we do? How do we react to this situation? What goes through our minds? Well, I don't know what happened. I don't know if I want to get involved. Maybe I need to rush over. What if it's a trap? What if, what if he's bait? What if I go over there to help him and, and these people come out and, and begin beating me and robbing me? What, do I, what if I have to, to get out? What, what if my, my motivation is to get out of the neighborhood as soon as I can? If I stay here longer, will something bad happen to me? All sorts of things go through our heads at that particular point in time, don't they? Sometimes we decide to act, sometimes we don't. But this is what today's lesson is about. And what we're going to see in today's lesson is, is we're going to, if, if you respond to the lesson the way I have over the last two weeks, my question that I keep on asking is, is, who am I? There are three people in the lesson today. And we're going to see three traits of those who follow Jesus Christ. And I have to figure out who am I? Am I one of these three guys in the lesson? Do I have the three traits that signify a follower of Jesus? So this is the Good Samaritan. This is part one of stories that changed the world. So our passage has three scenes, three acts, three movements. We have the test in verse 25 through 28. We have the tale in verse 26 through 35. And we have the teaching in verse 36 and 37. We're going to take a look at the test first. Now, as I explained a little bit earlier, if we're going to get everything we're supposed to get out of a parable, we've got to look at the context. And in a parable, sometimes you have to go back pretty far. And uh, what we teach at the workshops we do is you, go, you keep going back until things begin making sense, until you see elements of the parable popping up in the scriptures ahead of time. Now, uh, for this parable in chapter 10, we could go all the way back to Matthew chapter 7, the first time we see a lawyer. Things kind of build from there. But they start getting a little intense in Matthew chapter 9. So the context of the parable in the second half of 10 begins in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he says, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross and come after me. Now, what he's trying to convey to them, uh, that might not have meant a lot to them exactly when he said it. They hadn't seen what they were about to see. Uh, but they are about to watch Jesus Christ walk down the Via Della Rosa holding the cross that he's going to be crucified in after he's been beaten and tortured. And Jesus is saying, put this in your mind. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to walk the same path I do. You're going to have to go through the same things I go through. You're going to have to take up a cross like I am about to take up a cross. So he's really trying to convey the idea, if you're going to follow me, this isn't going to be easy. Now, he's going to build upon that. So he kind of plants that idea. And then in verse 28 of 9, we see the transfiguration. They go up on a mountain, two disciples and Jesus go up on the mountain. And Jesus is up there praying. And all of a sudden, he begins to glow. And Moses and Elijah appear. And what we see is the glory of God being manifested in Jesus Christ. The glory of God is resting on Christ and Moses and Elijah. And, and the disciples are like, wow, let's stay here. This is fantastic. Then let, let's build a tabernacle. And, and Jesus said, no, we got to go down the mountains. But what we saw was this walk isn't going to be easy. It's going to be a hard walk, but glory is coming. 
You're about to see me go through some very difficult things, but don't be concerned about that because I'm going to be with the Father. The glory is going to be manifested in me. And a little bit later on, he'll say, you're going to be with me there. So glory is coming for you, although it's going to be a hard walk. Now, to kind of accentuate that, in verse 37 of 9, Jesus heals this boy with an unclean spirit. He says, look, here's the authority. Here's the, the seal that that glory is coming to you and coming to me. Now, right after that, in verse 51, Jesus and the disciples, and this is more significant than it looks, they go to a Samaritan village. We'll talk about the Samaritans in a little bit. But they go to a Samaritan village, and they preach the, they, they preach the truth, and they're kicked out. The Samaritan village rejects Jesus Christ. The disciples are indignant. They're going, hey, let's call down fire and brimstone. Destroy this place like God did Sodom and Gomorrah. And Christ says, no, we're not going to do that. So you can see the disciples kind of scratching their heads going, what's going on here? In verse 57 of chapter 9, Jesus explains again, only this time in more detail, the cost of following him. And he uses three people who, who want to follow him as examples. One guy comes up to him and says, Jesus, in verse 57 and 58, he says, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. Meaning I'll do whatever, whatever I need to do to follow you. And Jesus turns to the guy and he says, let me tell you what this is like. I don't have a pillow. I don't, have any, I don't own anything. I don't have a place to lay my head. If you're going to follow me, you have to understand that you're going to have to give up everything that you hold dear that's material. You're going to have to be willing to sacrifice all that you own and all that you are. Now, we don't know. Everybody kind of assumes that that guy turns and says, no, I don't want to follow. But you know what? The text doesn't tell us. We don't know what the guy's reaction is. And the reason we don't know what the reaction is is because that's not the point. The point Jesus is trying to de demonstrate to his disciples is if you're going to follow me, one of the traits of somebody who follows me is the willingness to sacrifice. The, the means, it means a total sacrifice of everything you are and everything you have. And the next two kind of build on that. Because the second guy, he goes... Jesus goes to the second guy and he says, come and follow me. And the guy says, yes, I'll do that, but let me bury my father. And Jesus says what? You know, let the dead bury the dead. Now that sounds pretty harsh. Somebody just lost someone, doesn't it? What is that? Well, I mean, don't we have any compassion here? Isn't there some mercy? Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that because the phrasing is kind of ambiguous. The guy might be saying, my dad's sick. And it's a lingering illness, and we don't know when he's going to die. I want to be here. Well, that's kind of understandable. Again, maybe there should be some compassion. Maybe there should be some mercy. But when you understand Jewish burial customs, you'll understand that what is probably happening is the guy's father died already. Now, when, when somebody died in the first century in the Mideast, they would wrap up the body, just like they did Jesus Christ, and put him in a tomb. And the body would sit in the tomb for 12 months. And after it had sat for a year and the flesh had decayed, they would then go back into the tomb, unwrap the body, collect the bones that were lying there, and put the bones in a large, what they called an ossuary, 
which was an adobe type of a container where all the bones of the ancestor went. And so that allowed them to use the tomb again. So the guy could very well have been saying, and most likely was saying, you know what, I haven't collected my father's bones yet. Let me go do that. He's been dead for three months. I've got to wait another nine months or so. So Jesus, Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Don't let that be your concern because somebody who follows me has to be willing to endure some personal hardship, some personal grief, grief some, some personal sacrifice to, to be able to follow me. So there's a third one. Jesus says, follow me. And the guy says, let me go say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. Just follow me. Again, it seems like there's no, comp- no compassion here. But what Jesus is trying to say is, number one, if you're going to be a follower of me, you have to be willing to sacrifice everything. Number two, if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing to, to endure some personal hardship. Number three, if you're going to be willing to follow me, you have to make following me your highest priority. You can't rely on sentimentality. You can't rely on emotions. You can't rely on obligations that you think you have. I have to be your highest priority. Jesus is not saying don't go to a funeral. He's not saying don't say goodbye to your family. He's saying I've got to be the highest priority. These are the traits of people that follow me. Sacrifice, hardship, and him being our highest priority. So with all that in mind, in verse 1 of chapter 10, he sends 72 out to minister the gospel. He says, okay, now you've learned there's going to be hardship. You've learned we've got glory coming. Uh, you learned what the priorities are. Now I want you to go out and minister. And the funny thing about this is while they're out ministering, uh, Jesus goes into a couple of Jewish cities. Now, he got rejected in the Samaritan city. He goes into a couple of Jewish cities, and they're rejecting him, and he begins to pronounce these woes upon the cities, upon Jewish cities. And you can see the disciples, again, scratching their head, go, well, wait a minute. You know, you, you didn't do anything about the Samaritans, but now you're pronouncing these judgments on the Jewish cities? What's going on here? And, and again, there's a message to that. The Jews have the scriptures. The Jews have been told for almost 2,000 years that the Messiah is coming. And the Jews should know. They have no excuse. The Samaritans have an excuse. They're only studying the first five books of the Bible. The Jews have the rest of the Old Testament. So judgment is harsher on those who know than those who don't. In verse 17 of chapter 10, the 72 come back. They're excited. They've been casting out demons. They've been healing people. And they're celebrating over this. And Jesus says, don't celebrate over what you've done. Don't celebrate over what you do. Celebrate over the fact you have eternal life. He said, it's not about what you do. It's not about your power. It's not about your gifts. It's about the fact that you're saved. It's about the fact that you're transformed. It's about the fact that you have been regenerated. It's another crucial point. And then in verse 21, Jesus takes joy in knowing that wisdom is revealed to believers and they can appreciate it, they can absorb it, but it's hidden from the wise. Now, this is very specific because the wise people for that culture were who? Sadducees, Pharisees, 
scribes, and lawyers, and the priests. So following Jesus means sacrificing everything. Nothing gets in the way of following Christ. It means holding dear to salvation. Jesus says these things are revealed to believers. They hear it, they get it, they understand it. But they're hidden from those who reject them. And then he has this illustration. He's going to kind of bring all this home at this point. And the illustration itself will reiterate the three traits of the believer. So the illustration begins with verse 25 and a lawyer. Now, when you hear lawyer and when I hear lawyer, we think of somebody who understands jurisprudence, who understands how the courts look. Um, Well, it's kind of similar, only different. Uh, A lawyer in that time was somebody who understood the law as was written in the scriptures. He would be an expert at it. He would be writing it. He would be interpreting it. He would be helping people apply it. This was the guy to go to if you were saying, what do the scriptures say about this? And he would be able to tell you. And he starts out the whole thing by calling Jesus teacher. Now, we've seen this before. Uh, there are people that recognize that there's some kind of authority in Jesus. There are people that recognize that something's going on with his teaching, and they call him teacher, except Jesus is not just a teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He is the son of God. So when the lawyer calls him teacher, he's actually disrespecting who Jesus says he is. And if you understand the attitude that's coming from here, uh, the lawyer, this kind of drips out of him. There's some sarcasm here. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this isn't a question. He's not looking for information. He's not trying to acquire the plan of salvation from Jesus Christ. The word here is ekperazzo, okay? It means entrapment. It means to attempt. He's trying to entrap Jesus. The lawyer is an expert on the law. He knows what the scripture says. And he is now examining Jesus. And when he says, what shall I do? We learn a lot about the lawyer. First, we understand that he doesn't know who Jesus is when he says teacher. But then he says, what shall I do to earn eternal life? Because you know what, Jesus? What's the 12-step program? What are the steps I get? What, what, what things do I have to accomplish to get eternal life? So his faith, whatever it is, is based on works. He wants to know what works can I do to earn eternal life? Jesus says, literally, well, you know the law. You tell me. Tell, how, how do you read the law? How do you understand how this works? And, and, and the lawyer answers in verse 27, well... You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes, you're right. You got it. You got the right answer. Go do that. Go do that. So, now, we have to understand what happened here. Jesus directed him to the law. He said, and the lawyer said, the law is about how you love God and how you love your neighbor. It's not about what you do. Jesus just told the guy, it's not what you do. There's nothing you can do to get eternal life. Your eternal life will rise up out of how you love God and how you love neighbors. It's about your heart. 
It's about whether or not your heart is right. It's about whether or not the motivation of your heart is towards God or towards yourself. So there's a truth there. I'm not sure the lawyer sees it yet. About your heart, it's not about your works. See, the lawyer wanted to test Jesus, and Jesus is taking the lawyer to school, isn't he? The lawyer fails. Now he's indignant. Now he's defensive. Jesus kind of turned the, 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 uh, the, the tables on him, and now he wants to get back. So he says, well, who's my neighbor? He wants to justify himself, the scripture says. And he, he's in a position where Jesus hasn't been specific enough for him. He wants to narrow this down. Now, let me explain what's going on here. You see, to the Jews, there were only two types of people in the world. We've talked about this before. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. There were no others. Either you were a child of God, either you were a chosen person of God, or you were a Gentile. You were either a Jew or you were a sinner. That's the way they saw the world. And sinners, Gentiles, were not deserving of any assistance. Now, this comes out of a body of writing known as as the wisdom literature. It's extra-biblical, but the book of Sirach, explicitly says that Gentiles are not worthy of your consideration. They're to be ignored. The only people worthy of helping are God's people. People like themselves. The only people worthy of their compassion, of their mercy, of their consideration were other Jews or Gentiles who became Jews. Now the lawyer wants Jesus to make a distinction. Who's my neighbor? Who's worthy of my attention? Who's worthy of my compassion? Which people are worthy of help and who are not? And the big question here is whether or not Jesus is going to go against convention, whether or not he's going to go against the teaching of the elders. Everybody knows the answer to these questions. Does Jesus, is he going to go against the grain? Furthermore, does Jesus even see a difference between Jews and Gentiles? He's out there eating with sinners. He's out there healing people that that are are not Jewish. He's out there talking to people. He didn't even condemn the Samaritan village. He condemned the Jewish villages. So the lawyer's pushing him to say, where do you stand on this? Yeah, I know God says to love the neighbor. Tell me who my neighbor is. We all know the answer, Jesus. Do you agree with us? Well, Jesus doesn't answer. Not yet. But that's something that Jesus does, isn't it? Instead, he tells the tale. He tells the story, 29 through 35. And the story starts on the road to Jeruz- from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jericho is another one of those cities, we keep on seeing them, that's at a crossroads for trade. Uh, it's an extremely rich city. Uh, there are a lot of people, uh, priests, rabbis who live in Jericho that are working in Jerusalem. They go back and forth, but it's a very well-to-do city, and it was a very comfortable place to live. But getting from Jerusalem to Jericho could be rough. It was a 19-mile road, and it was 19 miles of desolation and danger. Uh, and you would travel along the ridge of the road. It was called the Ascent of Edumin. Um, 
the ascent is actually 20 miles long. Jerusalem is surrounded by all these mountains, and uh, there are five different ascents that you can get to Jerusalem from. This one is the main one from Jericho. People would travel along the tops of the ridges so that they wouldn't get attacked. If you traveled down in the valleys, they could throw stones down on you. They could, they could hide. They could do that sort of thing. So you would travel along the top of the ridges. And the ascent of Edumin was particularly dangerous because the thieves and the robbers all knew that anybody going from Jerusalem to Jericho was probably rich. So they would, they would hide and they would jump out and they would rob them and frequently kill them. And you know what? There's no police. There's no sheriff. There's no royal mounted Canadian police walking around making sure that everything's okay. There's absolutely no way to defend yourself. So we hear about this man who is beaten and robbed. And he's, he's on the verge of death. Now, uh, again, phrasing here is really important because what we have from first century literature is the description is that he appeared to be dead. He appeared to be a corpse. And three guys come by. The first one is a priest. He's a descendant of Aaron, almost like a royal descendant. And he is on his way home. He's going down. And a lot of people will make something about the priest being ceremonially clean. Um, It's not that significant of an issue here because he's on his way home. He's already uh, done his duty in the temple, so he doesn't have to worry about getting to the temple and going through the ritual cleansing. He's already done his work. He's on his way home. But he encounters this guy who's obviously in distress. Maybe he's dead. We don't know the motivation, but he passes the guy by. We don't know what's going through his head. Maybe he wants to get home. Maybe he doesn't want to get involved. Maybe he doesn't want to cause any trouble. Maybe he's thinking that, we, I, I don't even know if that man's a Jew. Or worse yet, he knows that the law prohibits him from touching a corpse. So he's got to make a decision. If I go over and touch him and try and help him, I'm going to violate the law. I'm one of those who teaches the law. I'm supposed to set an example. I'm not going to do that. That would just open the door for other people to do it. Now, maybe that's what's going through his head. Again, we don't know, but maybe that's what's happening. What we do know is amongst all the traits that Jesus has uh, delineated about how people follow him, this man here is not willing to make a sacrifice. So he's lacking, at, at the very least, the first trait. The second person who comes by is a Levite. Now, here's a guy that's appointed to serve. He's supposed to be working in the temple. He moves things around. He sets things up. He ushers people around. By the first century, sometime they're teaching. But he's there to serve in the temple and serve the people. Well, he walks by as well. Now, he's by himself. This is an indication that he's going down to Jericho as well. Generally, when people came up from Jericho to serve in Jerusalem, they would come up in groups because there was safety in in numbers. When they went back, they would usually go back to themselves because everybody had different responsibilities and it took different times. So he's by himself. He's on his way home. And we don't know his motivation either, but he could be thinking, I don't know, what if it's a trap? What if it happens to me? What if I get beaten up and robbed? Besides, what am I going to be able to do? I'd have to carry the guy. I don't know if I could carry him that far. 
Aside from touching him, the guy's heavy. This could end up being very expensive. How far can I carry him? Again, we don't know, but what we do know is that the second man, at the very least, lacks the second trait. He's not willing to endure personal hardship. Now, the third person that comes by, of all things, is a Samaritan. A Samaritan. Now, you have to understand what's happening in the story at this point. The disciples have seen Jesus rejected by the Samaritan village. Uh, the Jewish people have heard him condemn the Jewish villages that reject him. Um, we've had the priest, we've had the Levite, and now a Samaritan enters. And let me tell you what the Jews are thinking when they hear the Samaritans are there. There's at least 700 years of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. You know, when they came into Canaan, there was one kingdom. There was some tension between the two. They split northern kingdom and southern kingdom right along the line of Judea. Uh, the northern kingdom is carried away by Assyria, and that area is repopulated by Assyrians and some Jewish people. They intermarry. The ones in Judah do not. And then all of a sudden there's tension. And so they begin worshiping their own gods. They begin practicing their own type of worship. They build a temple on Mount Gerizim, about 25 miles north of Jerusalem, and they start worshiping there. And the Jews look upon the Samaritans as mongrels. They're half-breeds. They're not worthy of their attention. They're almost as bad as Gentiles. They've been fighting ever since. And so when Jesus says a Samaritan is coming by, everybody has an expectation of what's going to happen. They're not very nice people. They don't even worship God. I don't know what's going on with the priest and the Levite, but I'm going to tell you something. When this Samaritan shows up, it's going to get real bad. That's their level of expectation. And I believe Jesus has very wisely chosen this Samaritan as the focus of the story because to the Jews, if there was ever anybody who would not be a neighbor, if there was ever anybody who would be a non-neighbor, it would be a Samaritan. Remember, love your neighbor like you love God. So the stereotype, the preconception would be Samaritan, we, we don't have to love him, he's not a neighbor. He's not somebody worthy of our, our mercy. He's not somebody worthy of our sacrifice. not even somebody worthy of our attention. We, we should despise him and ignore him. So it, it's a little difficult for us to understand how shocking all of this sounded back then because the priests and Levites are supposed to help out. They're not. The Samaritans are expected to act like an enemy. Uh, he does anything but that. The roles are completely diver reversed. The Samaritan, Samaritan, I mean, he touches the guy. He pours oil and wine on him. The wine is for disinfectant. The oil is to soothe the things. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to an inn. He stays the night with him at the inn. He doesn't just drop him off and say, here, take care of him. He doesn't just throw money at the deal. He stays the night and takes care of him. And when he has to move on, he gives two days' wages. Back then, it was enough to take care of the guy for two weeks. And he said, if there's any more, I'll, I'll take care of it when I come back. So he's made this commitment to him. See, do you see the challenge that's presented here? If Jesus is right, if this story is accurate, then people are going to have to change their way of thinking. They're going to have to discard their stereotypes. They're going to have to abandon their preconceptions. 
They're going to have to start thinking about those who were enemies as being friends. Those who are enemies are actually acting more righteous than those who are righteous, who claim to be righteous are acting. What's going on here? I've got to change my way of thinking if this story is correct. And then Jesus puts the final touch on this lesson, and he begins the teaching. In verse 36, he says, Which of these three to the lawyer do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Well, the lawyer's got no choice. He has to admit, he says, the one who showed him mercy. Remember what the Jews thought of neighbors? Neighbors were people like them. It's not what's happening here. Neighbors were people who belonged to God. They were chosen people. They were kingdom people. But in saying the Samaritan was a neighbor, Jesus is actually saying to this lawyer, the Samaritan is a Gentile, is a neighbor. Everyone's your neighbor. Everyone that you thought was not worthy of your time is your neighbor. And if you love God, then you're going to have to love your neighbor. You're going to have to love this Samaritan. This is hard. This is hard for the Jewish lawyer. This is difficult. Because the lawyer is forced to admit that the Samaritan is acting more like a chosen person of God than his religious leaders were. More godly virtue than the holy leaders of Judaism. And then, and then, Jesus calls this guy to do something that just might be the most difficult thing he's ever done. He says, you go and do likewise. You see that? You. Go and act like a Samaritan. Whoa. (laughs) Act like a sinner. Act like a Gentile. Act like somebody who's an outcast. Stand in their shoes. Experience what they experience. Act like a Samaritan. Why? Not just because he's different, but because this Samaritan is acting like a follower of Jesus. He's telling the lawyer, don't test me, act like a follower of Jesus. Even the Samaritans can do that. That's why I had mercy on the Samaritan village. Even the Samaritans are eligible for redemption. Let's go back to our neighborhood in L.A. Why? Why do I think God spared Rodolfo Rodriguez? CNN interviewed Mr. Rodriguez last Thursday. And while they were talking to him, the cameras zeroed in on the guy. He said, I have no resentment towards the lady who beat me. He said, may God forgive her. 
And then he said, I pray that God would bless her and me. Now catch this. This, this man is so eager for God's blessing. He is reaching out and grasping God's blessing so hard that he's willing to forgive those who hurt him because he knows that's the path to God's blessing. He's willing to forgive as he's been forgiven. You see why God spared him? God spared him so that he could be a messenger of the gospel. So he could be a vessel of grace and mercy. And of all channels, CNN goes to interview him. God bless him. God bless him. So I find myself wondering, if I had happened upon Mr. Rodriguez, how would I react? Which of those three passers-by would I be? The priest? The Levite? or the Samaritan. And you know what? That's not even the issue. The issue is whether or not I would try to exhibit the traits of those who follow Jesus. Whether or not I would be willing to make a total sacrifice. Whether or not I was willing to endure personal hardship. Whether or not I could make someone else a higher priority than myself. I'll tell you why this is important. It's because what Jesus did for us, isn't it? When Jesus hung on the cross, he sacrificed everything for us. He endured personal incredible hardship for us. And in the whole process, he placed you and me, if we're believers or followers of him, he placed you and me as a higher priority than himself. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to walk that path. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for this incredible story that functions on so many different levels. Lord, we pray that you would impress the truths upon us, Father, that you would show us, Lord, that everybody's our neighbor. Uh, Lord, that we are to love you and love the world, Father, uh, with all that we have, with all of our dedication and all that we are and all that we own, Father, willing to treat them as a higher priority than ours, Father, because we are saved. We are destined for glory, Father. We stand with you as, as your body is basked in glory, Father, and they need to hear that truth. Help us, Lord, to serve those that come across our paths, Father. Help us to be willing to lay everything down that they might hear and see the truth in us. In Jesus' name, amen.